2020 is almost over. Here we are, a few days out, um, and we have a year in review uh, episode. But to be honest, I don't know that I've taken any time at all in 2020 to stop and reflect on, you know, what all has happened. I don't know. That's been my world. What about you? It has been a fast pace. It's been the the longest, shortest year ever. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You know, we've been stuck in the house uh, because we've been quarantining, Um, but it seems like the work has not slowed down, especially the work that we do in diversity and inclusion has ramped up. Um, And I just also think like when we think about the news cycles, it it has been nonstop. There has been one thing after another. And I think, you know, what we want to talk about today is all that's happened and how it's impacted DNI specifically. Especially in the context of who we are as not just individuals, but also as employees, you know, or as people who do work, who have jobs and work. And and I I don't know that we take too much stock on how much 2020 has impacted us in all aspects of our lives. Uh, I can tell you as a parent, as a worker, it it, it has just been um, an upside down world for me. There's no boundaries, right? I think that what you're alluding to is we no longer have these imaginary boundaries that we really didn't have in the first place, but we thought we had these boundaries and we walk into the office, we, you know, show up in a certain way and we no longer have these boundaries. Um, And so I think that has just brought to light, like all of these different parts of our world are really interconnected. And if we're not taking care of one part of ourselves, it does have an impact on the way we're able to show up to work or way we're able to show up for our families. And You know, the first thing I think is a glaring factor in all of this from this year has been COVID-19. So as we talk about COVID, we first have to acknowledge the uh, loss that people have experienced uh, due to COVID-19. Loss of loved ones, loss of family members and loss of jobs. Um, So we honor the losses that have happened. And also we thank all of our essential workers in the healthcare spaces and other spaces that have really gotten us through this year. So just a big thank you from our team um, to everyone and sending love to everyone that has someone. Absolutely. The COVID-19 pandemic is really just something that one, the positive side is how it demonstrated for us how resilient we are. Um, And I don't know if somebody had asked us to think about what would you do in the case of a pandemic? How would you adjust your work life? You know, the the crazy hours you work, the the balance you've tried to create as a working mom and as a consultant, Camille, like what would you do if this happened? I probably wouldn't have been uh, too optimistic of uh, of my abilities to adjust and to be as agile that I that I have been that I think COVID-19 has really made me a believer in my own resilience. <laughs> that is so true. Uh, I think resilience has taken on a, a brand new form uh, in 2020. 
Um, but, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the disproportionate impact that COVID has had on black and brown communities. Um, not only are black people with the virus two point times more likely to die that compared to white people, um, but we've also seen like, you know, these issues of class also show themselves and how COVID-19 has exacerbated who gets the virus because, you know, speaking of work, like black and brown people have to show up to work as essential workers at much higher rates. Absolutely. Or for those who uh, have the ability to stay home, I think there are certain things that were taken for granted, the simple ability to, to be able to work from home. And everyone in the in the height of this pandemic just said, you know, you heard your leaders, uh, both organizational leaders, but also our political leaders said, you know, well, stay home. Uh, without truly understanding what that meant for some people, especially uh, brown and black people, when you're saying stay home, that might mean for someone go hungry, not be able to make your rent, not be able to, to, to uh, you know, buy medication, but also for people who don't live in, in, in places, you know, that would afford for them to be at home and have an environment where they can work. So pivoting mm -hmm. to an environment where you can still function and be able to do um, your job well. Um, I don't know that there was much consideration given to that. And I know that there are certain um, arrangements at home. Uh, there's a story that struck me really uh, to my core when I was talking to uh, my cousin, who's a teacher, and how teachers were adjusting or not adjusting to students being at home for school and um, being thrust into the home life of students in a way that may, they may not have been um, culturally sensitive to and may say, can you go get your parent? And that kid is looking at you like, well, one, I don't live with a parent um, or there isn't an adult here. And this is very familiar territory for me. So it just opened up a lot of our fault lines, I believe, where we realize how much our home lives were very different. And that just kind of got pulled into this, the, 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 the center of everything, whether it's work, whether it's school. Um, and I don't know that we all, you know, were aware of some of those uh, circumstances. Camille, that brings up so many different things. Uh, as I think about, you know, an article written by my friends, Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts and Dr. Courtney B McClooney back in June around working from home while black and how that is different than maybe what other groups experience um, in terms of, you know, being able to show up at work in the way that you want to. So, you know, connect it back to our previous conversation on code switching. Um, but there are also things that black people are, are trying to do is to manage their perceptions in the workplace that look different virtually um, that I think we can't ignore. Uh, further, you know, as I'm thinking about uh, what you said about teachers and working from home, it also kind of triggers me to all the data that's come out recently on kind of women losing steam in the workplace and how in terms of job recovery, uh, this is like the first female recession in a long time and it threatens to wipe out decades of progress for US women. Um, you know, there's been so many articles about the struggles that women across different industries have had uh, with balancing that 
working from home a life, particularly those with children having to balance childcare, the lack of childcare with their responsibilities. And unfortunately, the data shows that, you know, male partners have not had to take on as much of the burden. Um, what's been your experience with that, Camille? I know you, you have some lovely uh, children at home running around, keeping you busy, I'm sure. What's been your experience? I think it's and I and I people always say it, and I'm also very, very conscious of not saying I had to take on the role of teachers because there's absolutely no way um, I, I, I could replace what my what my children's teachers provide them. But I feel like what it was was realizing that whatever facade of a balance I thought I was able to create, all of that came crashing down and initially meant I would I had to figure out how I, I, I switch focus. I was at home. And when I'm at home, I usually have my mommy hat on. And here I was at home and I had to have my consultant hat on while I'm trying to find a space to uh, be able to see the kids as they were doing virtual learning. I cannot tell you how frustrated I got making PDFs of work, but realizing that if I was stressed, that that will transfer onto my children. And so having to, to, to be able to seem like I had it all together, hold it all together to kind of allow for some continuity in my household. So I'm a mother, I'm a wife, and I'm a consultant. And all three of those roles are very, very important to me. And I was forced to, you know, operate in one space doing each of those things. There was a funny article uh, that I saw where a husband was talking about, you know, seeing his wife run the house like a senior manager uh, <laughs> because she was talking about outcomes and where are we on our project plan uh, to her kids. Right. And it's like the merging of these two worlds. And I just thought that was hilarious um, because I think our families, they they do see us with like only that hat on. And I think for many people, we have all had to like wear multiple hats at the same time in a way that's very different than I think any of us uh, expected to this year. What about you? What, you know, kind of what, what was the impact of, of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic on you, both your personal and professional life? Man, so COVID-19 has really made me realize that I need, you know, the things that usually fill my bucket outside of work. Um, I am a work hard, play hard person. Anyone that knows me will tell you that. Um, but that play hard aspect did not come this year. Uh, you know, I love to travel. Um couldn't do that this year, right? Um, I love like a sense of community, uh, being with my friends, being with my family, being able to go to church, all of those things fill my personal bucket. And that bucket was was dry this year. We couldn't do those things. I mean, at first we started, you know, trying to do a lot of Zoom things, but we also know Zoom fatigue is real. And so if you have to do it all day for work, like you and I do, you don't really want to, you know, have a Zoom happy hour with your friends, even though you you miss them dearly. And so um, for me, that was the hardest part of this year and the part that I am most excited about uh, getting back to normal, you know, when mm -hmm. we can. Uh, and I think as we, you know, connect this to the workplace, it's important for employers to understand, like, so many different home life type of situations. Like, you know, while you have to, to manage a house full of people and people pulling you in different directions, it also is very tough when you live alone and mm -hmm. you don't have, you know, people at home to help you stay sane and to fill your bucket in those other ways. And so, um, 
you know, we've seen a rise in mental health challenges and depression um, because of COVID-19 and just the isolation of quarantining, whether you live alone or not, it's become a real thing. And, and it does impact, again, how we can show up for work if we don't have those other things to fill our bucket that we used to. That is so real. So in Gallup, we've tracked uh, um, just individuals expression or feeling of worry and stress. Um, and that's something that we've tracked continuously on a monthly basis. And what we are realizing is that we are seeing significantly higher level people reporting higher levels of experiencing higher levels of stress and worry yesterday. Um, and, and I think that those are some of the things we started out talking about how we haven't taken the time to stop and reflect on 2020, because you've just been asked to pivot in so many different ways and direction. But what we are seeing, though, is that there's a considerably higher number of individuals who are reporting that they feel stress or that they've had some worry yesterday. And when we think about uh, some of the, the the measures we have for whether or not people are having symptoms of depression, we do see a, a significant increase in the number of, of of folks who are reporting that they have had some type of, of symptom related to depression. While it may not be clinically diagnosed, our data is showing that that is having you know those impacts on us in terms of stress and worry. So um, I think burnout is is a real thing in 2020, and that's something that um, isn't probably getting talked about a, 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 as much or wasn't talked about in the beginning of the pandemic. But I think as we get to the end of the year, what we are seeing is more of people saying, oh, I'm hitting a wall or, you know, I've, I, I just somehow feel exhausted. Like, what is that? Oh, well, for our listeners who don't know, uh, burnout is syndrome resulting from chronic workplace stress that's characterized by feelings of exhaustion, energy depletion, negative feelings, or any of those things kind of related to your job and reduced professional um, efficacy. And we have seen that 75% of people have actually experienced burnout at work this year, um, with 40% saying they've experienced it specifically during the pandemic. And so we know that that this virtual working world and all just the stress in our larger world um, has had an impact on the way that, again, we show up for work. And so we can't ignore that impact. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, oftentimes our conversation shifts to like demographics, like race and gender and how we can make sure those uh, groups are feeling included. But we can't forget that, you know, life experience is, is also one of those things we have to make sure people feel included. If you're feeling burnt out, how can your team make you feel more included, more seen, more important. Uh, that's what we're really working towards. And um, I hope that employers have, you know, taken this opportunity to learn from uh, what we're seeing as far as how they can connect with their employee uh, base and, and what engagement actually looks like under different work circumstances. That one's going to be a little hard because, you know, some there's some cult customs that you really don't come to work and talk about these things. These are issues that you leave at the door. Burnout. You're a workhorse. You go in, you get the job done. We, we, we're from this culture where you pride ourselves. We pride ourselves on productivity, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it was, you know, we, we pride ourselves on like working, you know, pulling all-nighters. Like we, th that's kind of the thing that we do. So to tell us, you know, how do we adjust? How do we pivot to acknowledging that burnout exists, that it is, it is detrimental and that we should be addressing it in workplaces where we've always pride ourselves on our productivity at all costs. 
You know, one uh, quote that stuck out to me this year is that rest is resistance. Uh, We have to reject this notion that we are workhorses and we work all the time, even if it is in a virtual work environment. I think the ability to have boundaries is more important now than ever um, in terms of when you're not available and you need to unplug or what you need to actually be productive. You know, I, maybe I don't need 12 hours of zoom meetings a day because we all know that it's energy depleting. Like the science actually supports that, that zoom meetings do not give us the same energy as in-person meetings. And so, um, taking that time to rest, taking this time, hopefully our listeners are, are taking this, you know, break between the, the holidays and the new year to rest and reflect. Um, that's part of, you know, being able to fill our buckets so we can show up for work in the best way. But, you know, one thing, Camille, I don't want it to seem like it's all been doom and gloom with working virtually. Uh, there have definitely been some some happy elements of it. For me, it's been sweatpants. Like being <laughs> able to wear sweatpants to work, most days, not every day, but most days has been fantastic. What would you say has been one of like the positive things for you um, working virtually this year? I think it's the, um, and I'm going to put my little consultant hat on here, but it's the the realization among uh, workplaces, and I say workplaces meaning big workplaces, which is that giving employees autonomy and flexibility is not a bad thing. It's one of those things that you were always constantly struggling and it became a perk. And, you know, there were some organizations that struggled to envision what Uh, employee autonomy and flexibility looks like. And I think that was one of the big positives that came out of COVID-19 and having to switch to remote working is that uh, organizations can now see tried and tested that their people can remain productive at home. And if you give people autonomy, they can, uh, you know, produce as well, if not even better. So that for me was uh, the highlight from uh, COVID-19 is seeing the agility in, in teams and organizations. So you've learned a lot more from COVID than I have because I'm focused on the sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> sweatpants are nice. <laughs> no, no, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And it also makes me wonder, like, what is going to happen to FaceTime in the new world? I mean, I think 2021, we hope as we move towards a vaccine and a cure for COVID-19, um, you know, we'll be in this new world. So there's been so many organizations that we both work with that there is this expectation of FaceTime, especially those who, you know, aren't doing a manual type of work, um, but they still had this expectation of FaceTime. What do you think is going to happen as we move forward with that particular cultural expectation? Um, I think some people are going to benefit from that. So here's one side effect that I think is also a positive side effect with that same um, getting FaceTime. It's almost like a leveler where you now have to see everyone. I feel like more managers were forced to have conversations with employees that probably wouldn't have been employees that they would have connected with. But because of this kind of force, um, you know, we have to talk to everyone. We have to engage with everyone. If it's even to see if you're at home really working, um, that it has actually caused um, for more conversations to, ha- to, to to be had. And so there are some people who were probably unseen that are now being seen um, in, in very different ways or in more deliberate ways. So um, I think for me, that's one of the um, important things is that I'm looking forward is to see how we, you know, 
move on with with those kind of uh, 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 lessons? Are managers going to keep up some of those practices, which is reaching out and checking in on folks and 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 and, and you know following up with with those you know important conversations or not? So that that's for me the interesting point that I'm going to be looking to see if that continues. As we're thinking about, you know, this broader landscape of diversity and inclusion and how it's changed this year, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how racism has reared its ugly head um, and really been at the center of conversations, even, you know, back in March and April, as we saw the rise of xenophobia and racism against people of Asian descent. Um, about three in 10 Asian adults said that they have been subject to slurs or jokes um, in the workplace because of their race or ethnicity since the outbreak began. And so, um, you know, what's been your experience as you've talked to clients about uh, xenophobia and how racism has played a part, particularly because of COVID-19? I think when it comes to how, I think what that showed me actually is how cruel people can be to each other. But when we think about the spaces into how different things bleed over in people's work life, one of the things we talked about, or at least I talked about with my clients were how are you create how how you can combat those uncomfortable situations that are being created for people. And this was before we got to where, you know, we all had to like close up shop. And it, it was really about what do you do in terms of creating an environment where an employee comes in and feels welcome, like people aren't turning their nose up. Hey, so-and-so is from this country. You know, I'm not going to work with that person. There were some of that, but not to a very large extent because then it came to America and everybody had to deal with it. But I think for the larger issue of racism is really saw employees and employers alike stop and say, well, we can't just happen. We can't just move past this again. We have Mm -hmm. to do something, have to be deliberate. um, And we have to maybe start by talking with each other. So I have a lot of clients that said, how do we shift to talking about something that we've never welcomed in our space that we've never even allowed? Some of them had outright policies that disallowed those types of conversation. How do we do this switch right now because we have to. So I think the urgency, I saw a sense Mm -hmm. of urgency and then I saw a sense of what do I do? How do I start to get people to talk about something that I've not allowed or that they're not used to talking about? What about you? I think what I've seen a lot of is just the humanity um, in how, you know, these things that happen outside of work impact us. Um, you know, in my classrooms at Georgetown and the the MBA uh, classes, I had students tell me like, I don't feel comfortable speaking up because I am from Asia and I think my classmates are going to judge me. Um, and that was heartbreaking for me um, because it's like, you know, you, you want to keep certain things out of the classroom or out of the workplace, but you can't when they, it has a direct impact on how we interact with each other. Um, so for me, it was just all about like reminding ourselves that we're all humans. We all hurt. We all bleed. Um, and no matter how someone is showing up to work in terms of their exterior perspective, that these things are having an impact on our mental health, on our productivity, even in our ability to feel comfortable just with the people we work with or go to school with. There are lots of positives that I think came out of our awakening 
if you want to call it that, um, around um, racial equities in our society. And I think that, if anything, was the good part, because then workplaces, just the same way we just talked about COVID, seeing that if you give people autonomy and flexibility, that they can still perform well, is people starting to get warmed up to the idea of create uh, what the importance of having inclusive work environments mean for organizations, for business outcomes. I think people started to warm up more so to the idea that these are important things to have in their environments. Yeah, I would add to that, you know, I've seen equity into the conversation in a whole different way since June of this year with the resurgence of uh, Black Matter and the racial reckoning as a result of George Floyd's murder. You know, we weren't talking about how we can make sure that we have equitable workspaces. We weren't talking about anti-racism out loud, like you just, you know, alluded to. Uh, We weren't, you know, taking public answers around these issues, right? That we saw many companies do. And so uh, for me, it's been exciting to see that the conversation around diversity and inclusion has shifted and maybe has broadened to, to include equity, specifically in terms of action. I think that companies are still struggling with, you know, how do we improve our diversity demographics? How do we measure our inclusive cultures. But one thing we certainly can do right now is look at the the equitable or lack of equitable nature of our policies and our, our programs and how we approach the work that we do and how we make decisions informally and formally. And so that is, you know, one of the things that I'm taking away from this year that I think has been fantastic for the world of diversity and inclusion and now diversity, equity and inclusion. It for, for for me, what I'm taking away is so much about myself, right? So I took a lot of it was ref, was in, in interrogating of certain practices that I had adopted because of you know working in workspaces that weren't always un- inclusive that you know that required me to do things is realizing why I was doing certain things and being more intentional. So I think for this is my sweatpants moment for 2020 <laughs> <laughs> was really about that the the personal awakening in myself in terms of my own behavior and how much of the mask. It's my mask wearing. I didn't know that I wore, you know, so much I wore my mask so often. Let's put it that way. Uh, when it comes to how I uh, reacted to things that were impacting me, particularly things with racism, uh, my background, as you know, is criminology. So whenever we see the gross miscarriage of justice through our, our, our the way we administer justice through our law enforcement entities, it always struck me to the nerve and. Hmm. Um, not being able to show up and to talk about it and to express how I felt about it was something that I was ready and willing and able to do when I showed up to work the the next day after George Floyd until someone asked me how I was doing. For me, it was realizing how tired I was of wearing the mask. So it's one thing to wear the mask. It's another thing to realize the toll it takes on you wearing that mask. And I think that when we were having these conversations in the workplace, people were asking you, how are you, how are you doing and what can I do to help? Um, 
I just was like, I am tired. I am tired of seeing this happen day in, day out. I am tired of people getting energized around a negative event that happens in the media and then not following through with it. I mean, quite frankly, I was tired of hearing the helicopters above my house. We're both in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and I was tired of hearing that. Like, you know, it's like all of this for issues that we have seen for decades and centuries around racism and racial inequality. Um, and so I, I hit walls of just being tired and had to figure out ways to make sure I was uh, taking care of myself mentally and also though it helped me to lean in to the work that we do. It helped me to know that in this work matters around diversity and inclusion. And if we don't do it, then we are kind of missing that opportunity to have an impact in the spaces that, you know, I, I think that we have been uh, well positioned and well positioned to impact. Absolutely. From one of the things that I think was an important part of this summer too was it, it's not like it's hadn't hadn't been there before, but I think there was a heightened awareness around the struggles of Black women, both Black women in our society as as well as Black women in our workspaces. Uh, I thought that that was one of the there, there, the door isn't all the way open, if in, in my opinion, but we got insights into the struggles of black women um, through Brianna Taylor to say, say her name, but also in a corporate setting that black women uh, tend to be the individuals who are most likely at the brunt of some uh, uh, non-inclusive and mistreatment in the workplaces. And I think being able to have conversations around that have been particularly uh, rewarding for me. It's this juxtaposition of this, you know, notion that black women are the most educated group in the United States. Um, and there's, you know, statistics on both sides of, of that perspective. Um, but even with black women being, you know, a very educated population, it still doesn't connect with the opportunities that we often have, the compensation and wages that we get, the quality of life, and, you know, even the respect in the media and the care of society uh, to protect Black women, as we're talking about Breonna Taylor. And so it's like this weird juxtaposition that Black women are are having to traverse, um, particularly in the workplace. So I know we have to switch gears a little bit and talk about the other big thing that happened in 2020, and that's uh, politics. How much are politics changed? How much are politics shifted and divided us into sectors, into camps? Um, 2020 was actually a very charged year for a, 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 a number of different reasons. Politics bleeded in every area of our lives. Politics touched on our beliefs. Uh, uh, it separated families. It, it, it's probably caused a lot of, of, of agitated, aggravated discussions. Uh, but for you, when you think about the year 2020 has been in terms of the political year and the impact it has had on workspaces, what have been your experience? Well, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's been a year that people want to have these uncomfortable conversations for the first time. They're saying, hey, we're ready to have these tough conversations. And though we still feel like there are certain things that we can't talk about. 
at work, such as politics. And um, I think it's something that organizations are still struggling with. Um, you know, most people feel that politics don't belong in the workplace. Um, and whether they should be in the workplace or not, we know that people are having conversations about politics in the workplace. So it's it's more about that adjustment of how do we have healthy dialogue and discourse um, and we, people struggle with it. You know, the Dialogue Project is a great organization that has studied, you know, the inability that we've seen people to have conversations around difference, um, embrace people with different perspectives. It's just something that in the United States, particularly, we struggle with. But the Dialogue Project found that across the world, we are more polarized as a people um, than we've ever been before on these issues. Absolutely. When you look at the 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 conversions of of essentially all the issues, whether or not we could go back to work, we should go back to work. That became a political issue. Whether or not uh, uh, racial equity was important for us as a society, that became a political issue. Uh, so much became a political issue, and it's not that it's twenty twenty. It's not unique to twenty twenty. But a lot of those, uh, there was a convergent point if you ask me in 2020, especially given that it was a presidential election year and all the issues got, you know, played, so to speak, all the issues got played. One of the things that we found in our data that I thought was important and, and to me summed up my 2020, if I was to coin it, which is skeptical optimism, where we had three out of four voters saying that a candidate's standpoint on race relation was extremely or very important to them when they were making their decisions. Uh, that conversion point gave me hope. What about that statistic really gives you hope for our workplaces and our ability to have these conversations in the future? I think the difference is people just, it's more than people's perception. That three out of four voter number uh, made me uh, uh, optimistic about people willing to to act on their beliefs and saying, if you're stating that something is important to you, then willing to make a decision that could impact uh, others' lives with that decision. So um, that's where the optimism came in. Whether or not the skepticism is also, we've been here before. So that's why I said the skeptical optimism is how, how does this manifest itself in our lives moving forward? you know, we can only have one 2020 presidential election. What do we, right. what will we do when 2021 come around? Are we going to now have this become part of our muscle memory where we start mm. to act on our beliefs? I think that's where I'm most excited as well, because, you know, I've seen action for the first time um, and, and not just in the moment, as we saw in June uh, of 2020 with companies coming out with statements. But, you know, over the rest of the year, we've seen examples of companies like Unilever, uh, for example, pausing advertising for the rest of 2020 because they said that it's too much of a polarized atmosphere. And a lot of other companies uh, like Coca-Cola um, and Ben and Jerry's also doing the same. And so it's the, it's been this wave of action behind values and action behind uh, the morals that companies say they believe in. And I hope that continues as we look towards uh, 2021. Uh, Camille, what are things that you're looking forward to as we as we move towards 2021? We can't move quickly enough, in my opinion. <laughs> I want to get there like tomorrow. But uh, what are the things you're looking forward to seeing in the workplace? 
I feel like there were a lot of lessons. There were lots of conversations. There were lots of feedback in 2020 when it comes to the workplace. And for 2021, what I'm most looking forward to is seeing how this change how this impacts change in the workplace, um, whether it is change in, in organizational policies and, and practices, or you know whether or not we adjust our behaviors. Uh, do we still put on our mask? Maybe it's we wear them, but with less frequency. Um, it's really about how do we take the lessons. I think there were lots of lessons, as I mentioned, and um, when you when you when you learn a lesson, the natural next step is to apply. And I'm interested to see how we apply ourselves in 2021 in all aspects of our lives. Absolutely. Um, as I'm thinking about lessons learned, I also think about kind of how we've seen data be such an important part of how we can really connect with the impact of the work that we're doing in diversity and inclusion. And so I'm really looking forward to the 2020 census results coming out March 31st of next year, um, because it's an important element for us to understand, you know, how close we're we are to becoming a nation where people of color are no longer the demographic minority. And it's going to force us to rethink how we use terms such as dominant group or minority group. That is truly exciting for me um, when I think about the work that we do, because, you know, shifting the terminology, shifting the expectation away from, you know, white and male being dominant in our workplaces, in our larger society is going to be a game changer. So I know that 2020, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, seeing our data that comes out in March will get us that much closer. We have data on in 2021 coming out, which is quantifying the experience. I think one of the thing about amplifying uh, Black voices that we're focused on on the center, a big part of it is quantifying the experience so it can no longer get denied. And mm. we have a focus on workplaces uh, in the beginning of 2021 for that very reason. So we're going to be, you know, quantifying what those experiences are. Are there disparate experiences between people of color and others when it comes to how they experience their workspaces? Answering that question and then understanding what the impact of those experiences are having on individual workers' uh, overall engagement, satisfaction, and performance, and the impact to businesses as well, because there are impacts. And so it's, all, it's, it's about having the data to uh, further those conversations and, and, and really amplifying Black voices so we don't constantly become that group that is often talked about but never heard from. It's trying to mm -hmm. undo uh, um, uh, some of those uh, limitations that has been put on us. I love that. And I cannot wait to see the day that the Center on Black Voices will release very, very soon in, in 2021. Um, as we, you know, round out the year, I want us to think about like what has filled our bucket the most this year. We've talked about some things that have taken away from our being filled, but from a professional and personal standpoint, what would you say has really filled your bucket in 2020? I think for 2020, professional bucket filler is definitely the ability to merge my passion and purpose with my work. Uh, being able to stand up the center on Black voices has really been something that has always been part of my passion 
that I felt connected to in terms of my purpose. And so being able to marry my work with that has been my bucket filler um, uh, professionally. Personally, I think it's it's getting halfway through um, the school year. So it's finishing one, one school year out and, um, uh, we're doing well, (laughs) we're doing well in the Lloyd household in terms of making it to the end of, uh, uh, 2020's, uh, uh, first half of the school year. So that's been my, uh, personal bucket filler. What about you? Well, congrats to the Lloyd household for making it this far. (laughs) Um, For me, I think it's also connected to that purpose and the work that I do. Um, There were so many genuine moments this year where I saw organizations really dig their heels into the doing the work of DE&I. From the CEO in Australia who emailed me to say that, He wasn't going to discuss the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter in his organization until he read my article in the Harvard Business Review. To me, that was a moment that really filled me personally and made me kind of uh, re-engage and and understand that I had a purpose in the work and having an impact. Um, Or the executives that I talked to that shared for the first time their personal experience about being Black in corporate America um, with their organization, and some of which who had been working at places for over 20 years and had risen to these levels of leadership, um, but had never really had a real conversation about what it's like to be a black leader in these companies. And so those moments um, of authenticity and those moments of being vulnerable uh, and seeing uh, my clients be vulnerable and, and also bringing me to a place of vulnerability, those filled my bucket in my professional world. I'd say personally, uh, you know, the best days in 2020 are the ones that I laughed uh, until I cried. So whether it was from TikTok memes, Black Twitter, uh, conversations with friends, or even, you know, that iPhone update that started sending us pictures uh, every day of like different places in our lives, like all of those, you know, seemingly small things, I think I stopped taking granted those moments to laugh with a friend, to catch up with a family member, um, those things filled my bucket along the way this year. And I really needed those um, because it has been a tough year and um, I'm, I'm really grateful for those. Absolutely. Well, Ella, I want to also say I'm grateful for you. You've been my own bucket filler when you talked to us uh, earlier this summer and also getting uh, so much more time with you this year. It's also been a bucket filler for me. Thank you, Camille. I think this podcast is definitely part of my my bucket fillers, one of the funnest things I do in the work uh, that we do. And so I'm so grateful uh, to be able to share this with you. So thank you for bringing your whole self to this. And I want to thank our listeners for starting this journey with us this year. Uh, We're excited for all the things that will come in 2021 with the Cultural Competence Podcast, from thinking about the business case and the moral case for D&I to authenticity and when keeping your real goes wrong to how to amplify the voices of your black and brown colleagues. So we have so much to discuss. Um, This is only the beginning. Thank you for being on this journey with us. uh, And we cannot wait to continue. That's our episode. And that's our 2020. Join us in 2021 as we continue our journey to cultural competence. Happy New Year, everybody. That's our podcast. To subscribe to Cultural Competence from any podcast app, 
Just search cultural competence. You can learn more about the Gallup Center on Black Voices by visiting gallup.com. Cultural competence is directed by Curtis Grubb and produced by Justin McCarthy. I'm Camille Lloyd. And I'm Dr. Ella Washington. Thanks for tuning in to Cultural Competence, a diversity and inclusion podcast.